On this episode of AvTalk, we continue our conversation with NTSB investigator Sean Payne to discuss the NTSB's 2021 Most Wanted list and their call for crash protector recorders to be installed in all passenger-carrying commercial aircraft. Hello and welcome to episode 111 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. And Ian, I'd ask you how you are as I usually do, but I already know because I got on an airplane and I went to see you in person. Whoa. I know. Who's counting but 413 days? Huge, but it is true. 413 days without stepping foot on an aircraft is probably the longest span of not flying in my life, including from birth, I think, more than likely. I don't ever wish to repeat that again, but we did it. We got me on a plane and I got to Chicago and we had a hot dog and we had a few drinks and I went home and it was great. And with minimal... Kind of headache, really. I mean, I'd say everything, there was everything no headache. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, the the there, magic. There was of, a, a, a tiny headache, but it I, wouldn't, I'll, it wouldn't I'll, be I'll mention the tiny headache. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's typical Saturday flying, which I guess kind of every day these days is kind of like Saturday flying. There's rarely hmm. ever in air congestion these days since the the flight schedule since uh, still pared back quite a bit. But I flew American out of LaGuardia, the old concourse, of course. Got to keep it the way everything has been before the pandemic. And then flew to O'Hare. We pushed back early. We took off early. We landed early. We got right off the runway at O'Hare, straight to the gate, which almost never happens. It's not like we landed in Milwaukee like usual. And then 35 minutes early to the gate, and the jet bridge is broken. So... You know, just typical nonsense. It was fixed in five minutes, but that's just kind of perfect, isn't it? I I felt like I felt like something had to happen. You know, you just need that one little thing that reminds you that, yeah, okay, things are things are getting back to normal. Things are still normal, and in the the weirdest of ways, because I always feel like, oftentimes, the most difficult part of, of airline passenger flying. You could fly from Tokyo to New York to the exact minute the airline tells you you will depart and arrive. I mean, they have this thing down to a science, but it's that last five feet between the gate and the aircraft that things always seem to go wrong. The jet bridge is always broken, or it always takes 10 minutes to get that last five feet. A lot of improvement to be made to jet bridge technology in the future. I feel like we could do a whole podcast episode or maybe even a spin-off podcast on JetBridge technology or maybe not. But I mean that would be fun. I know there are automated technologies out there to remove the human element which may or may not be a good thing. So yeah, let, let's talk to yeah. somebody about that. A future topic for exploration. I, I wonder if anyone wants to come on the podcast and and just talk about JetBridges. I think that yeah, I think that would be interesting. Yeah, if you are a jet bridge aficionado, reach out. <laughs> that would be an amazing business card to have, right? <laughs> Just here, jet bridge aficionado. I think that would be great. So you came and you you went as quickly as you got here, and it has now been a, a week. And we have a great podcast for you this week. 
Last episode, episode 110, we talked with Sean Payne, who is an investigator with the National Transportation Safety Board. His specific focus is recording devices. So we talked to him mostly about aircraft recording devices and specifically the ones you would normally find in a commercial aircraft that we all happen to call the the black boxes. And you can take your pick on the, the apocryphal lore of why they're called black boxes. But as we all know, they are brightly colored orange. So we talked about that. Then we asked him to come back and talk to us about what the NTSB is asking of the industry to make it safer and what kind of things are on their most wanted list for the 2021 version of of the NTSB most wanted list. So we're going to talk about what the NTSB is proposing as far as mandating recorders and and things like that uh, and what types of recorders in just a little bit. Uh, I think that's going to be a very interesting conversation and I think a lot of people are going to have some very strong feelings about that. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But shall we start, as it seems customary for the last couple of episodes, shall we start with the airworthiness directives that pertain to the 737 MAX and or a system therein? Yeah, I guess we have to. So the first one came out, so we're recording uh, the the 4th of May, standard uh, Star Wars Day disclaimers all around. The the first one came out today, and that is an airworthiness directive regarding a subpart on one of the, the, not one of the, both of the Leap 1B engines, which are the exclusive power plant for the 737 MAX. So this is not a Boeing issue specifically, but what it is, is related to the fact that all of these 737 MAX have sacked for a very long time. And so the pressure subsystem unit and a the uh, I'll, I'll read it because it, it sounds very it sounds very official due to pressure transducer corrosion following extended storage periods. Oh, so basically the plane sat around and they do what metal does when they sit around and they corroded. So this airworthiness directive says, hey, make sure they haven't corroded and here's how to fix it. This is not the the first uh, airworthiness directive or directive of any kind to address long stored aircraft. We've talked about this in, in the past couple episodes, the various things that operators need to be on the lookout for as far as power checks and engines and and flight controls and things like that. And just remembering to do all of the things that they are supposed to do when they put aircraft back into service. So this isn't a 737 MAX specific type of issue, but this particular issue relates specifically to 737 MAX, especially because they've been sitting around for for much longer than even the, the pandemic only related storage. Right. And these aircraft have not been sitting around in places you would typically see uh, an aircraft grounded for extended periods out in the Mojave or, or somewhere hot and dry. These aircraft were kind of scattered everywhere. They were at the uh, – I think this is probably mostly directed at the aircraft that hadn't yet been delivered and were sitting around in Washington State or, or, or 
Portland or somewhere in that area where those are not ideal conditions to combat corrosion on these aircraft. So I'm sure they were looking out for exactly this situation, but it's not something, again, you want to see. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It's it, But this is one of those, it's unfortunate, but this is how the system is supposed to work. CFM saw that this was happening. They notified the FAA. The FAA says we should tell everybody and make sure everyone's on the same page and here's how to fix the problem. So here's an airworthiness directive. Now you know what to look out for. Everyone's got the information. And let's continue to to get these aircraft you know, safely back in the air. Yeah. The, the system, it, it shows that the system is clearly working, but the system has been working far too often to protect against <laughs> issues with the 737 MAX recently. Yeah. I mean, and, and yeah, that's, I, I think, fair to to say. And so that leads us, I guess, to the second airworthiness directive. We talked about this last episode that it would be forthcoming. It has forthcome? Sure. I, okay. The airworthiness directive related to the electrical issues, but it's not really a description of how to fix the issue because the FAA's airworthiness directive says you have to fix the issue, but we're still waiting on Boeing to figure out how to do that. Yeah. It seems like Boeing is taking their their careful time to figure out a procedure to remedy this issue which is surprising to me because this doesn't seem like a particularly difficult issue to troubleshoot. I mean, they, they must have very carefully documented the change in manufacturing um, of these components to, to break the grounding path. So uh, um, maybe it's about how you access these components without having to totally disassemble the aircraft. I'm not quite sure, but airlines have been very clear to say that this fix won't take very long at all. They should be back in the air within a matter of weeks, but we've been waiting a matter of weeks. And so far, we, we still don't have the actual procedure for these airlines to fix the aircraft. Um, a number of them said, I think it's like 24 hours of work per aircraft to, to get them back in the air, but they can't start that clock until they actually have a procedure. Yeah, exactly. And so we'll we'll wait for, for Boeing to, to issue that and then We'll see when those aircraft start getting back into the air. Like we talked about last episode, it's a hundred. Well, I, actually, I don't know if we talked about this particular part of the the problem last episode. It's a hundred and six, hundred and seven delivered aircraft. But the FAA's original notification, the, the continuing airworthiness notification for the international community, the CANIC said that it affects aircraft between various line numbers. And if you do the math on those line numbers, it's about 600 and change. Yeah. So there's, there's a clear cut difference here between aircraft that needed to be grounded because they were already delivered and the total number of aircraft Boeing had produced with this, gosh, what do we want to call it? Manufacturing defects, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if it's a man. It's a, a design flaw. I guess. Yeah, would be yeah. Way it's a design it. flaw. That, that's probably the clearest way. And I assume to this date they are still manufacturing aircraft with this design flaw of some sort. Manufacturing flaw, unless they have somehow reverted, already reverted back to their previous assembly method that had the proper grounding of this equipment. So I do wonder if they're still 
manufacturing the Macs today that are impacted with this issue that they'll have to, again, go back and, and rework? That is a very good question and one to which I do not have the answer. Hopefully, we, we, we find out exactly what this was all about because it just seems, like I said last, it, it just seems so odd that you would, why now? It doesn't seem to me that there's a, a clear benefit to this particular, it seems like it was a, a solution in search of a problem. And they they found themselves a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, unless there was you know a, a real you know underlying issue here that that was not discussed. Why you know why make that change? Why why change anything? But that was a, a a mini rant I went on last time. So if you want that rant again, just replay the previous episode. But we'll move on. Jason, you sent this news to me, and your description was quote unquote. It's not a good look. And That's I true. Thought, I thought that was uh, an apt description. Can you explain for the fine folks at home how things are going for a certain hydrogen fuel aspirant, shall we call them? Not great. Let's lead with that. So this comes out, this article comes out of Flight Global, who details an incident Zero Avia recently had with what they describe as, I believe, the first commercially sized hydrogen-powered aircraft, which was recently very badly damaged. I guess you would say a forced landing outside of an airport where we don't know why the aircraft had to land in this field that, that's not disclosed, but the aircraft landed with its wheels down. Apparently, one of the wheels dug in and the aircraft shed one of its wings, which leads to a very grim looking image. I mean, it's a the tail seems to be intact, but one of the wings is completely sheared off. It's a very bad look, but then again, it's a hydrogen powered aircraft and a lot of people are, I guess, not undeservingly a little scared or hesitant about hydrogen power because, you know, that whole Hindenburg disaster a century ago or so. But the aircraft, apparently, the the, can, it, the issue was contained. The propulsion system was not compromised in any way. It didn't explode the second it hit the, the ground, which a lot of people have unfounded fears about hydrogen-powered aircraft. But still, it is not a good look for the first commercially-sized hydrogen-powered aircraft. And it, it's a single-engine aircraft. It, it's not huge. It's not a, it's not a jet. It's not... I think it's like a six-seater or something like that. Uh, Cessna 208-ish. Exactly. Aircraft. But they said uh, no fluid leaks were observed. They are looking into what happened, but they have not yet disclosed why it happened. But this will undoubtedly set back their program quite a bit. I'm going to take – I mean, it, yes, that will happen. It, it will set the program back. But I, I'm going to take the view that this is – I mean, in the grand scheme of things, and, and I absolutely, b before we get angry emails about this, I would absolutely not be saying this if anyone had been injured. But because no one was injured, it's a great data point. Go on. Because at some point, you know, it's important to understand what happens when an aircraft ceases to operate in a manner that you want it to to use a very roundabout phrase. So I think it's you know it's very interesting and and certainly there will be 
in-depth study of exactly what happened both to make the aircraft, uh, what's your, have you described it as an off-airport landing? Yes. Uh, was the, the phrase that they used. So why did that happen? Certainly that's going to be investigated. But then also, what exactly did the aircraft do when it hit the ground or, or when the, the wheel dug in and then you know stopped its off-airport landing and became an off-airport tumble? And then how did the system respond? Did it do what it was supposed to do and was it protected? And, and the answer to that part is pretty clearly at this point, yes. Yeah, because everybody walked away. The plane looks terrible. We'll put a, a photo in the show notes, but everybody walked away. So, so obviously, the folks at Zero Avia are doing something right. In that, they're doing regard. something right. That's that's right. I mean, again, it, it's a bad look, but I, I don't know with this particular prototype aircraft if, if hydrogen fuel is stored in the wing like a traditional gas-powered aircraft is, because certainly the wing coming off the fuselage would lead to a fuel leak of some sort with a conventional aircraft. But apparently that did not happen here. I'm very interested to learn how that is or why that is. So there are some things you cannot simulate on a computer to 100% accuracy. It's a terrible way to get your data points, like you said, but this is maybe a positive thing, maybe. I don't know if I call it a positive thing, but I'm looking for, for positive aspects of this thing. I'll allow it. Okay. All right. So in news that both makes me happy because it happened, but sad because it happened and we weren't able to be there as originally planned, uh, thanks to uh, a global pandemic, the the first major airport uh, is now being operated by a remote control or a remote air traffic control tower. It is not a remote control tower, although that would be really cool too. It is a remote air traffic control tower. So London City Airport is is now being operated remotely by Nats. And they have cameras, sensors, all sorts of of fancy equipment. I believe I have previously described all of this as whiz-bang, to borrow a term, I think, from my grandfather. But I'm a little kind of disappointed we couldn't be there because we had originally planned to go visit the folks at Saab who developed all this technology. And we just couldn't couldn't make it work because of uh, travel restrictions and things like that that came into, into force last spring. So here we sit from afar remotely enjoying their uh, success. So some really cool stuff. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to, to the tech and, and kind of how it works. Continuing our theme of I think some unfounded fears or folks not necessarily understanding how, how everything works and raising some some questions there. The tech is is really fascinating and what it opens up as far as situational awareness and, and things like that that are kind of beyond the the human eye, I, I think are, are really interesting. And it'll be interesting to see how if and how Saab can translate that into Obviously, we're not going to to go remote towers for for all airports. There's there's still a a very very solid case to be made for having people on the ground. But how can those technologies assist air traffic controllers to to make things even more safe than they already are? 
Yeah, way back in I think 2012 at the Paris Air Show at, at the Saab booth, they actually had a, a live demonstrator of the at the time bleeding edge remote air traffic control tower. And I'd very much like to see how that technology has progressed in damn near almost a decade now. Wow. But it was very cool seeing it back then. But there's also Reuters had a a very cool video. Um, Unfortunately, they were there and we were not uh, inside the the control center. And there were a couple interesting things that they pointed out, such as that obviously the air traffic controllers controlling the airport are not physically at the airport. So they don't get the smell of what's going on. They don't get the, the feel of actually being there. But the remote system actually has microphones to pick up ambient noise that you would otherwise hear if you were there in the tower in person and it pipes it in to the remote control center, which I think is pretty cool. So they said they can hear an aircraft push back and the engine start up and the engine spool up. Um, I guess they could hear birds chirping very loudly if there's some birds <laughs> over the airfield. I don't know. But it's it's very, very interesting to watch the progression of this technology and I think one of the, the key benefits of this was supposed to be that one controller could operate multiple airports. I don't know if that can be the case with such a large airport like London City, but this is definitely the beginning of a trend. I think that's going to pick up to be spread to airports of this size, maybe like uh, Milan's other airport or, or, or airports of that size. Like I guess it works well here at London City because there's one runway. So there's not that much complexity going on the day to day. I don't know where it'll hit next, but it's probably not going to be Heathrow. No, 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 probably not going to be Heathrow. No, I, like you said, it, it's, it, allows, it allows for less busy. I mean, the, the projected use case, I, I think, was, was that it allows for less busy airports to have air traffic control, but also for an air traffic controller to deal with multiple airports to make it you know, much more cost effective rather than having someone be there the whole time. So you get a you get kind of a, a a spread over where the air traffic controllers can be quote unquote without having to to have them at remote airfields but you get the the safety of air traffic control built in you know via technology very cool stuff hope to see it in person one day one day one day we're we're getting back we're get hey you you made it to chicago now it's you know first chicago then the world or or, or something so yeah, we'll, that's, we'll get that's back the into same. the swing of things Let's talk about what we all knew was coming, but was finally announced today. And that is Malaysia Airlines is going to be getting rid of its A380s, uh, quote unquote, in the coming months. Sad. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, it is. It is sad. Elegantly put. Yeah. And accelerated timeline for for their retirement for sure but they will be gone in the coming months they haven't flown in quite some time all let's see all six of them eight of them i should have this pulled up in fact i do all six of them performed a recent hey we can still fly from uh, kuala lumpur to Kuala Lumpur. I was so, going to say it's not a very big fleet, but then I'm reminded there are A380 fleets that are literally half of that size. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> the A380 is weird. 
I mean, that's that's a pretty solid description of the aircraft. Yeah. Uh, but most but, yeah. most of its operators at this point are, are letting it go, but there are still a few that are keeping it around. We we know British Airways has again expressed that it will be keeping its A380s around, that it, it has a place in its fleet. And of course, there's uh, Emirates who uh, can't possibly get rid of its A380s at this point. No, no, they'll be keeping them around. And Qantas has pretty consistently said they're going to sit for a while, but they'll be back. Yeah. And then there's the polar opposite where you have Qatar, whose CEO has basically said, these airplanes are ecological disasters and they need to be gone immediately. I think he has ulterior motives in saying that. Of course, it's Akbar al-Baker. Of course, he does. But it seems like Qatar and also Etihad, the aircraft will not be making a return at any point. Yeah. Well, I I thought Qatar was going to bring half of them back, possibly. Or or is that kind of a hedging? I think that was hedging their bets. They retired half of them immediately, probably some sort of financial thing or some sort of leasing thing. But the way Akbar Hal-Baker put it, I would be very surprised if they put it back in service just because I guess if if he's so against them uh, because of their fuel inefficiencies, why bring them back at any point? That I do not have an answer for. I bet he doesn't either. Yeah, that that's true. So Lufthansa is is getting rid of theirs, but they are adding. Should we call this a a top up everybody order. a keep everybody happy top up order? We'll take a, a couple of these, a couple of those. But yes, this past week Lufthansa announced they will be taking an additional five seven eight seven dash nines and an an additional five. A350 900s. In the near term, the 787s are actually coming quite quickly. This this winter, um, they say as early as, well, as early as next winter, which I think is this coming winter, with others to follow in the first half of 2022. But interestingly, these are coming very soon, obviously. So Lufthansa is not taking a number at the back of the production line. They did actually say that these are aircraft that were already manufactured. So these are whitetail aircraft that are already manufactured and unfortunately unwanted and unloved by whoever they were originally produced for, be it uh, Norwegian or probably Norwegian or somebody else. These aircraft had to go somewhere and that somewhere is Lufthansa. I'm just glad they found a home. That's true. The A350s, on the other hand, won't start to be delivered until 2027 and 2028. So who knows what happens by then? A360. Sure. Why not? I don't Uh, know. Yeah. So yeah, the 787-9 will be an accelerated entry. They already had 20 orders on the books. This is an additional five, and they're coming rather soon. So that's nice. Are the 787s going to Lufthansa Lufthansa Prime, I guess, or are they going – because I know Lufthansa always orders for the group. Yeah. Okay. These are going to Lufthansa Lufthansa as opposed to the Lufthansa group who then divvies it up to whomever in the group, Eurowings, Brussels, Swiss. No, these are going to Lufthansa Lufthansa. I don't want the Austrians to feel like they've been left out. No, never, never. They will operate those lovely 767s until the end of time. (laughs) Hey, they get the job done. They do. So more good news for Boeing and 
really good news for the triple seven line. Silkway is going to take five triple seven Fs, which is the triple seven line needs any good news it can get at the moment. As the entry into service for the triple seven X seems to be slipping and slipping and slipping and slipping. So Silkway will take five triple seven freighters, and that kind of helps bridge the gap ever so slightly between the current I do, do we just call it the the regular triple the current triple seven the, as the triple seven co the the C, the non x the ng uh, the n there you go so between that and the the triple seven x as they as they come online do we and, know what the future is for the triple seven freighter will they continue producing that alongside the triple seven x as time goes on i believe that for now that's the case, but I know that there there's always the we're studying the feasibility of et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't know how long that'll last. That's a good question and something to look into for a future episode. Yeah, that, that will be interesting because they'll effectively be producing the last gen aircraft. But I think these are GE90 powered alongside the 777X. These are GE90s on the, the freighter, correct? Yeah, the freighter has the, the, the GE90, yeah. So it's essentially like a 200LR as at the same time they're producing the 777X, which is a completely different architecture. So that's – I wonder how long that will last for. I, I do not know. I will look into that in case somebody else knows and, and I have missed it, but I do not know at the moment. So we, we've got Boeing – pretty much dominating the the dedicated wide body cargo market for it's not even close <laughs> well, not pretty much dominate dominating i mean you, you you've got one option from airbus and and that's not great no the the eighth i think we've talked about this before in, in the past but the the a330 freighter is an absolute market failure <laughs> <laughs> Qatar had it in their fleet for like two years and they were desperate for freighters and even they got rid of them. Yeah. So Airbus wants in on the freighter market. So what are we going to see? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> Get out of here. Not going to happen. So that'll be interesting to see what Airbus develops as a competing product line. And then it'll be really interesting to see if Boeing responds with a 787 freighter. That's what I want to see. Uh, wh which one do you think it would be based off? The 8, 9, or 10? I want to say the 9 just because that's the proper 787 as we have discussed before. Mm -hmm. But I honestly – I do not know. But I would love to see if, if, they, if they counter with that. Yeah. I'd also love to see if they can cut a, a cargo door in the composite fuselage of a 787 if this is even possible. That should be fun. Sure. Why not? Okay. I mean, uh, there's got to be a way. Is it economically feasible? Probably. Do I know how to do it personally? I do not. Mm -hmm. But I will try my very best. So Airbus wants in on the freighter market, and that is something to, I, I think, the, a long game that, that we'll watch. But they seem to be getting much more serious about it because they've looked at how much money they can make and have decided, yeah, that's a good thing. We like that. Yeah. They've got a couple of belugas they don't need anymore. 
I mean, so if you have, you know, if you have need for bulk ping pong ball carriage, <laughs> sure. Uh, if you have bulky but light stuff, maybe, I don't know, 20 tons of memory foam, maybe. We've got the aircraft for you. Catch up? But uh, I no, too heavy. Ah, damn. Too heavy. But if you wanted to carry that ketchup on an A330 passenger aircraft, Airbus and Lufthansa Technik are working on an A330 cargo cabin conversion kind of quick change kit, showing that I, I don't think that you know the, the cargo transport in, in the cabin is going to go away anytime soon if, if they see the need to, to work on this and, and get an STC for it. Yeah, and this makes sense since we've seen published by John Ostrauer over at the Air Current, the A330 has taken an absolute beating during COVID more so than pretty much any other aircraft other than the A380. There are an absolute ton out there that can be not fully converted to a freighter with a with a, a freight door, but can be you know quick changed out to carrying freight. So this is a an obvious win for. Airbus and Lufthansa technique to to go ahead and, and get this out the door. Yeah, for for sure. I mean, this is we looked at the A three thirty kind of early on in when when things were shutting down and and dealing with that. We took some data and then John's kind of piece in late April in, in the air current really hit the nail on the head as far as the, the A330 is just oddball place in the market and finding ways to to make use of it and keep it going. So it'll be interesting to see how many people, how many people, how many airlines take advantage of the uh, the Lufthansa Technic Airbus uh, cargo conversion kit, I suppose. Let's do one more new planes thing and then we will bring Sean in for our part two of our conversation. Aeromexico has finally figured out what they're they're doing with their fleet, maybe? Yeah, probably. Um, they, they've switched out from shedding aircraft to adding aircraft, which is a fun hey, hey. swing. So we, we know they shed a, a sizable chunk of their fleet, including a bunch of 787-8s, which not too recently uh, operated the, the fake longest flight in the world, but wasn't actually <laughs> the longest flight in the world. But Aeromexico, this is reported by... Uh, Edward Russell has, says they will be adding 24 737 MAX, including the 8 and 9, and four additional 787-9s. Nine aircraft are due by summer with the additional arriving through 2022, so that's pretty quickly. Again, yeah, I, I would assume these 787-9s are probably whitetails. Aircraft How many 787s produced. did Norwegian have on order to get? Apparently <laughs> enough. I mean, if you want a 787... Now's the time because apparently Boeing is overstocked on them and they got to put one of those wacky waving inflatable arm tube men out at, at Payne Field to attract some new airlines because they apparently <laughs> got enough to go around. <laughs> oh, I would love oh, I would love to see that. Me too. Me too. I would I would please if if you're a Seattle <laughs> area listener just let me know how much it costs to rent one of those wacky waving tube men <laughs> and and we'll send you up there. 
Oh, that would be so good. Everything must go. Okay. We're going to regroup right now and, and put our, our serious safety faces on. And we're going to bring Sean Payne back into the discussion to talk about what the NTSB has on their most wanted list for 2021 and how those things can further enhance safety in the aviation industry, not just commercial aviation, but all different aspects of of aviation and, and the entire industry. So stay with us. We'll be right back after a quick break, and we'll continue our conversation with Sean Payne of the NTSB. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are joined once again by Sean Payne, a uh, investigator with the NTSB. If you haven't listened to part one of our conversation yet, we highly encourage you to do so. What we talked about in, in part one of our conversation was how the NTSB and, and other investigative agencies use flight data recorders. And we focused most of our conversation on the, uh, on the cockpit voice recorder, but it, it applies more generally, and how those devices and, and the information from those devices can be used to inform an investigation. Sean has graciously agreed to, to stick around and, and discuss looking forward now. So the NTSB recently put out its 2021-2022 most wanted list. And we are going to focus in on one of the particular items, and that is, I'll just read it straight from the list. The FAA should mandate crash-resistant recorders in all passenger carrying operations and require data monitoring and analysis programs. Operators should not wait for mandates to do so. They can realize the safety benefits of these technologies now. So, Sean, thanks for coming back. We appreciate you joining us once again. Thanks for having me. I'm excited Welcome to back, cover Sean. part two. <laughs> hey, Jason. So I'm just going to pick apart that sentence and let's start from the very beginning. The FAA should mandate crash-resistant recorders. So I think one of the things that we need to clarify for, for some people listening probably already know this because we've talked about, I think we've talked about this in the past uh, and Jason can correct me if I'm wrong, but the NDSB is an investigative agency focused solely on the safety of transportation and has no regulatory authority. So, so even if you wanted to say everyone who is driving a bus and piloting an aircraft has to wear a, a pink hat, <laughs> you couldn't do that. That's correct. So the NTSB, we're an independent federal agency, and we're uh, tasked with investigating tra transportation accidents. And in the aviation sense, you know, every aircraft accident in the United States. So we do not have the ability to create regulation. We only have our accident reports in which we can suggest um, new ideas, essentially, to create a wish list, so to speak, of what we can do to increase transportation safety, as you said. So the FAA should mandate crash-resistant recorders in all passenger carrying operations. We talked about this a little bit in, in part one, but there aren't crash-resistant recorders in all airplanes that carry paying passengers? That's correct. So as we touched on in part one, you know, part 91, part 135, and part 121. Part 91, most people associate with general aviation. 
However, there are exemptions that allow paying passengers to take uh, part one, part 91 flights. So even in part 91, we're looking in areas where complex high performance turbine powered aircraft are carrying passengers and they're simply not required by the FAA to even carry a recorder in the first place. If you go um, look at 135, for example, um, the same goes there. You're, you're booking a charter flight to go somewhere on a private jet, say. That private jet might only have a CVR. It might not have an FDR. Furthermore, it might not have avionics that are even capable of recording instrumentation data. So uh, not that that's meant to survive an accident, but there are some cases, I would say some, I'd say more often than not in, in, in these spaces with these 91 and 135 high-performance turbine-powered aircraft where we're simply not getting flight data in the first place from a federally sanctioned crash-protected recorder. In fact, in the most wanted list, it's spelled out explicitly that between 2005 and 2017, uh, of the uh, fatal crashes investigated by the NTSB, 86% of those aircraft had no recording equipment whatsoever. That is a huge percentage that must make the investigation process so much more difficult than it needs to be. Yeah, I think the misconception is that when a plane crashes, the general public kind of expects that, oh, there's a flight recorder and someone can just plug it in and download it. In a lot of these cases, as Jason said, 86%, uh, there's simply no no data like that to go on. There might be some kind of sparse instrumentation data, but there's not a federally sanctioned recorder in these aircraft or helicopters that, that will help us lead to, to an answer to make safety improvements. So it might actually be the case that the best and possibly only data that you're going to get for some of these crashes is actually ADSB playback on, on sites <laughs> like Flight Radar 24, and that's kind of mind-boggling, actually. Yes. So uh, yeah, I mean, ADSB data does often come into play, and in these investigations where we don't have a lot to go on, maybe ADSB data is is the only you know element of, of data that we do have. Uh, we often rely on what we call a performance study. So. We're finding ways to take this sparse data and try to reach a probable cause. Uh, in a performance study, for example, we look at what is the aircraft capable of doing physically through the air based on the points and the route it flew through the air, and what does that mean in the overall context of the accident? So we're having to perform you know, quite a bit of detailed analysis and studies just to get at some simple questions that could easily be answered by a, a crash-protected recorder. So besides a, a recorder that's included, a federally sanctioned recorder to, to kind of use the, that, that particular phrase, yes. and publicly available ADSB data, what other types of, I guess, recorders are you seeing in aircraft that, that are proving helpful or, or maybe not helpful in investigations? Yeah, I think we should definitely touch on the fact that we've received about 650 image recording devices in about the past five years in the NTSB just for aviation. Uh, a lot of times these cameras, for lack of a you know, better word, we're, we're getting GoPros, we're getting cell phone videos from passengers, stuff like that. Um, a lot of times these devices are associated with accidents that don't, or an aircraft that don't have crash protective recorders. And you can imagine that the use of these images is, and, and video is highly val valuable in the investigation and can answer quite easily you know, what happened. So those videos are often taken from a passenger's perspective or or they're mounted, you know, if it, we're talking about a GoPro, they're, they're mounted by either the pilots or, or a passenger themselves and they've kind of got a, a single field of view. But that's not really what the NTSB is talking about as far as, you know, cockpit image recorders, is it? 
Right. Yeah. So first, I want to stress that when we receive a device like this, when we receive data like this, it's handled in a way that is exactly similar to how a CVR would be handled. So the protections that are applied to a CVR for handling the data uh, are applied the same way to uh, an image recording device. That said, when the NTSB has asked for image recording devices, they're quite a bit different than, than a GoPro, for example. The types of devices we're talking about uh, do exist in the crash investigation community, and uh, they're almost surgical in nature. In other words, they are providing a, a very limited view of the flight crew. For example, ICAO and Annex 6 set forth some guidelines for investigative tools such as image recorders. And in the ICAO guidelines, they say that a future standard should eliminate the flight crew's head and torso to the greatest extent possible. So I think to clarify some misconceptions, these recordings are actually not showing most of the pilot. What they're focused on is the instrument panel, the flight crew's interface with the instrument panel and flight controls, as well as a view outside the cockpit. Uh, they're also, in some cases, and, and the standards are emerging, not even a video in itself, but rather still images. So this highly special, specialized way of using imagery or video data is something the NTSB is asking for. I want to clarify that's very different from asking for a GoPro installed in uh, every airline cockpit. That's simply not what we're talking about. So this may be a question that you can answer, or we might need to to call someone up at, at, at Boeing, Airbus, Embraer, <laughs> okay. et cetera, et cetera. But it, has there been any look at now that most new aircraft are, are going to a, a glass cockpit and, and LCD screens and things like that? Is there a way of just broadcasting what those screens are showing to a recorder? So, I mean, kind of negating the, the – because you're, you're interested in the instrumentation, right? Right, right. Exactly. So, what the image recorders are – what we have been using them for in, in many instances is to supplement instrumentation or instrumenting the aircraft. So, as you said, just sticking a camera that looks at the instrument panel gives you all the, I'll say, black of a better word, health data of the aircraft, right? So, that said, when um, ICAO is discussing image recorders, there's different classes of image recorders. And I believe the class that most people think of in terms of being a camera that looks in the cockpit is class A. However, there are other subsequent classes that might just capture uh, screenshots of the of the flight instrumentation displays, as you said. That's why I like talking to you guys. You guys are always ahead of the ball and know, know what kind of questions to ask you. So that's great, you know, great view into what the future of these devices might also include. Interestingly, many aircraft today, especially wide bodies, they already have video cameras throughout the aircraft. So many, many have cameras in the passenger cabins. Some even have multiple cameras outside, either on the tail, providing a view of the fuselage, right. or in the case of the 777-300ER, they actually have flight deck accessible cameras that look back at the uh, wingtips to help them navigate around the airport. But to my knowledge, none of that is actually recorded and is able to be used in an investigation. Would yeah. external camera recording also be helpful? Yeah, great question. Uh, none of that right now is going to the FDR. And I'd be careful to include any view of inside the passenger cabin, but certainly the context of those cameras that are used to help taxi the aircraft or provide a view of the in-flight entertainment system to outside the aircraft are discussed in the new ICAO guidelines around image recorders, and there is a plan to potentially capture those if, if regulated. So it, the call for the image recorders is kind of separate from, it's not kind of separate, it is separate from the adding flight data recorders to aircraft that right. don't currently have them. I mean, is there, there's obviously a cost to this, 
which is why airlines and and especially you know part part ninety one part one thirty five operators don't do it on their own. The second part of this is require data monitoring and analysis programs, and it seems to me that not only is that a safety issue first and foremost, but it seems to me that there would be some some operational benefits to those programs as well with these right. recorders. Right. So I'll start with the, the first part of your question and for the expense and maybe older aircraft that are being upgraded that don't have an FDR. So I used to be an instrumentation engineer for the Navy when I said I worked in flight test in part one and my job in, involved me, you know, wiring aircraft and aircraft systems to collect data. And that process can be, you know, very in-depth, very expensive and very, you know, time consuming. And I, I don't want to keep going back to image recorders, but an interesting way as to how to use an image recorder in this scenario is if we're asking these older Part 91, Part 135 aircraft to be, for lack of a better term, instrumented, the easiest way to do that instead of putting a CVR or an FDR in it is to put some kind of image recording device. If you have a simple way to collect digital data, then as you said, as part of the FDM program, which is this, the second part of the most wanted list item we're asking for, you can then exploit that data like the airlines are currently doing to try to find some safety benefits or areas in which flight crews can improve their performance or uh, things other pilots can, can learn from so they can avoid the same problems uh, maybe made on a flight previously. So I want to kind of flag that part right there, that Airlines okay. are already doing this, right? So the flight data monitoring and the, they already have programs that take data that the aircraft is giving them and making you know kind of making their operations safer. So this isn't necessarily a we think this would be a good idea. It already is a good idea. So is the barrier to entry really just retrofitting aircraft that don't already come equipped with this? Well, of course, everything in aviation is a bit more complicated than that. And I think one barrier for implementing this is the airlines, uh, the Part 121 airlines have a lot of resources. They have a lot of employees. As we look at 135 and 91, the challenges become, okay, maybe you're a Part 91 operator where you're taking paying passengers on a photo flight. Do you have as many employees to staff a FOQA program or sorry, flight operations quality assurance program? Uh, or use an FDM device to exploit its data? And, and the answer there is, is usually no, or they have a very limited amount of employees to do that or resources. I think where we're looking to apply this in 91 and 135 is the tech that's out there now can certainly assist these operators in becoming enabled, maybe not to the extent that an airline does it, but certainly to an extent that would capture some safety improvements that could very well avoid an accident in the future. One of the big criticisms of the request to install cockpit video recording or, or additional monitoring is a, is a privacy aspect. And while I don't want to get into necessarily for and against, mm -hmm. I think it might be a good idea to discuss the difference between what an NTSB investigation right. is and what the goal of that investigation is versus you know someone who might be trying to to work on behalf of an insurance company or criminal or, or civil litigation. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think this is a great place to interject that. I think one of the reasons I work at NTSB and enjoy what I'm doing is you'll never hear anyone in NTSB use the word blame. What we're looking for in a safety investigation is what went wrong with a system usually. 
and where in the system do changes need to be made in order to prevent it happening again. Um, we, we never say whose fault was it, you know, or who was to blame. And I think, you know, throughout the aviation industry, even in 121 airline operators that are using FOCO and FDM devices, it's important to stress that these investigations are non-punitive and they're only for increasing uh, safety awareness. So unless there's a strict rule that the operator uh, cannot use this data in a punitive way, that, that would be that would go a long way in, in helping to adopt these recommendations. So we have said that in the past in, in, in other recommendations related to FDM devices and FDM programs. But I think it's something that as you know, one of the reasons I'm going on the podcast is we, we need to clarify this publicly and remind people that a safety investigation is a safety investigation. It's to, it's to save lives. It's to make transportation safer. It's not to blame the pilot. It's not to blame a particular person in the organization. It's to look for those Swiss cheese holes, the different slices in the reason model of I started getting more philosophical about the idea of an accident investigation, but it's to look where we can prevent these accidents from happening and fix those problems without punishing someone. So at the end of an investigation, the NTSB final report comes out and, and Jason and I sit down with our cups of coffee and go through them. And there's always at the end of every report, there's always kind of, you know, safety recommendations for that particular incident and or, or accident or or whatever has happened. And so right. I'm wondering how could the mandate of a crash-resistant recorder, or even some sort of video recorder, and and then you know a monitoring program? How could that? Are there any specific examples that you can point to where, where you're like, okay, it's very very likely that if they had been doing these things and, and had a right. safety program beforehand, we likely would have avoided this. Sure. Let's talk in context of FDM first. So in terms of avoiding an accident that was preventable altogether, one of the accidents you can look at, some of the listeners might be familiar with it, is a overrun of a Gulf Stream in Bedford, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, I think it was, uh, sorry, I don't have the report in front of me, but it was a few years ago. Um, what we found there ultimately was the flight crew uh, did not unlock the gust lock before they took the runway and applied throttle. Uh, when they went to rotate, they were unable to rotate and uh, subsequently ran off the end of the runway at a high rate of speed and hit a drainage ditch. Unfortunately, it was uh, fatal to, to everyone in that aircraft, including the flight crew. What we found, uh, that particular aircraft, though it was not mandated to have, did have a quick access recorder. That's a device that you would use for flight data monitoring. So beyond the two hours that a CVR or FDR would record, this device, I think it recorded over 200 hours of data. Luckily, it survived the accident, which might not have been guaranteed because it's not crash protected, but we were able to look through that data. And we found that in a majority of the previous flights in that 200 hours of data, the flight crew had not done something as simple as performing a, a flight, flight control check. So um, had they identified that the flight crew was not performing a flight crew uh, flight control check, you can see very easily how something that simple, in terms of ensuring that ensuring that they follow the checklist and perform the flight control check, could have very well avoided that accident. That's a pretty clear example and one of one of the easiest ones. So this isn't something that I mean it, it's something that is very regimented and and needs to be 
mandated in a very specific way to make it non-punitive. But that's something that an operator could say, okay, we've noticed this and then we can go back to our training on this or we can, you know, begin kind of, you know, everybody here. It seems as simple as just, you know, sending out an email for, for some of these things. Right. And, and it can be in certain cases. I think guaranteeing that non-punitive uh, use of the data is certainly a challenge, especially for the 91 and 135 operators. And the NTSB needs to get out there, you know, just as proactively with the pilots in that stance. And as we discussed earlier, you know, remind people what a safety investigation is and why the use of this data is valuable, especially in a non-punitive way. Is there anything else that that you think our listeners should know about this particular most wanted list item? Like I said before, I think we are really working with a lot less data that you can that the general public thinks we are. Even for larger aircraft, if we look at the Atlas accident in in uh, Baytown, Texas, the Atlas Amazon Prime branded uh, cargo plane. That recorder was only required to have 34 parameters. It had a bit more than that, but the conclusions we came to would have been greatly benefited benefited by having a, a more robust view of what was going on in that aircraft. And I think when we're asking to quite simply install crash-resistant recorders, I think that's my main talking point here is saying that just because there's a jet flying overhead doesn't mean that the FAA has mandated a flight recorder in the first place. And if it has, is it really recording all the data that we need to, to get to an accurate probable cause to prevent it from happening again? I think really that's the main uh, takeaway that, that I would project from, from this particular most wanted list item. Sean Payne mechanical engineer, NTSB investigator, and a really good sport to come on uh, (laughs) two episodes in a row. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really hoping that that we can have you back on after the the most wanted list is is no longer wanted. And we can talk (laughs) about how that has benefited the NTSB safety investigations. So thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. Thanks thanks for having me and uh, letting me talk about uh, some of the great improvements we can hopefully make and prevent these accidents altogether. Thanks, guys. Welcome back. So we've got part one with how everything works. We now have part two with how the NTSB is thinking about the future of recorders and recording devices and and how things are going to work. We would love to hear your thoughts on this, be it from a passenger perspective, from a pilot perspective, from a safety professional perspective, all all sorts of things. Uh, We we would love to have your perspective. Please, please email us uh, if you have some thoughts on this podcast at fr24.com. We really want to hear kind of what what you all are are, are thinking about and, and whether or not these are things that should be included on the flight deck. Now that we've kind of talked through exactly what investigators are after uh, versus what we might conjure in a popular imagination of this is a you know a, a video recorder or a recorder a visual recorder. Uh, so so hopefully we can incorporate some feedback into uh, into a future episode. 
Jason, news broke today that United is ditching delay codes. And from all the reaction that I saw, yours included, that's great news. Yeah. Why do I care? Okay. Well, it's mostly great news for employees of the airline. So a little background on what a delay code is. Basically, anytime an aircraft is is delayed pushing back from the gate, be it one minute or, or 30 minutes, someone at that airport working for that aircraft, I guess the station manager, gate agent, whomever, needs to pick a specific predefined code to describe why was this flight delayed pushing back. And that often leads to some controversy, I guess, because that means you have to assign blame for that delay to a group of people or an individual person. And oftentimes, making that determination, is it's not clear. How many times, Ian, have you boarded a flight and it pushes back five minutes late for absolutely no discernible reason? I, I mean, more often than I could ever possibly count. Exactly. But every time that's happened, somebody's getting blamed for it or some group, uh, be it the mechanics, the pilots, the gate agents, somebody is getting blamed for that delay. And what United is doing is getting rid of those delay codes, which gives the the crews, uh, the ground crew, the flight crew, the cabin crew, the gate crew, more flexibility to give a little leeway to pushing back an aircraft, um, be it if that's waiting a couple extra minutes for uh, connecting passengers or to load that extra bag of peanuts into the galley or whatever. Basically, they won't be looking to assign blame for a flight that's pushing back two minutes late because more often than not, almost entirely, pushing back two minutes late doesn't have anything to do with what happens on the arrival time because you're still going to go push back into traffic or, or, or taxi out to the runway takes some amount of time. So it's really an employee-friendly and passenger-friendly concept that United is pushing through here to be more flexible in pushing back flights that don't have to go out exactly on time. American had a big bout of doing that right before COVID called D0, which means flights must be pushed back at the exact time of departure, whether that means you leave 15 passengers behind or whatever else. It was very... To me, it's nonsensical because there's so much padding built into the schedule that you're probably going to arrive early if your pushback is is delayed by two, five, even 10 minutes. So kudos to United for thinking logically. We'll see if they stick through with this, but I bet it's a a, a nice gesture to employees that they will definitely appreciate. This is one of those things where it means the most to employees, but as a customer, I feel a lot better knowing that if I'm on a connecting flight and you know you you always get the sense that there's a bunch of you on that flight because you get that feeling are, are we going to make it and you can feel that energy where it's like okay are, are we all going to make that connecting flight that that we're all we hope they hold the flight and more often than not in the past couple of years the answer has been no you're on your own even if there's 10 people or 15 people going from wherever to wherever on the same flight if you're beyond the the time, they're not going to hold that flight. They need to get that out. And, and this seems to me, you know, certainly it's more focused on the employees, but a very customer friendly thing to do. 
certainly not something I want to have to care about, but if no. I did, it seems like it would be a, a nice thing to it, it's specifically impactful had. during the, the this COVID era because missing a connection could seriously screw up your travel plans in that there are so many fewer flights. If you miss that flight from Chicago to Heathrow, there might not be another Chicago to Heathrow flight that day. It also means that whatever preparations you took for entry requirements to that country, let's say a COVID test, you have to take it 72 hours before departure. Suddenly, if you miss that connection, you are no longer within 72 hours of that departure and you have to get a new COVID test. And depending where you are, that might be anywhere on the scale of annoying to difficult to impossible. So good on United for at least trying to get its employees to use a little more of their own their own discretion in delaying flights. Yeah. So very quickly before we go, new airlines that you should either be aware of or or not, but these are some new airlines that exist and then one that might exist, could exist, should exist at some point in the future, we'll see. Avello is the the newest creation of former United Airlines CFO, and they began operations out in California. Their first flight was Burbank to Santa Rosa, and that went off uh, with a big aviation geek crowd enjoying that. There's Air OK in South Korea. There's Jason's new favorite airline, Bees Airlines. Not B Airlines, as, as I almost mean. Airlines. So there's Bees Airlines, and then there's going to be Ryanair's Buzz. I'm That's sensing a theme. I, I guess people like bees, I, I, I guess. I don't think so, but I, I just like the Bees Airline livery with their little... It's nice. Ex- it's nice. It's not as cartoony as uh, Buzz with the, the cartoony B, but I just like discovering airlines that I didn't know existed, but they didn't exist until last week, so I wasn't missing out on much. <laughs> and then there is the Super Air Jet. Because what the Lion Air Group needed was another subsidiary. I believe this is number 262. And they're A320s, I think, which is a little different for them. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what's going on here and, and what this is all about. But it is supposed to be a an airline focused on the millennial traveler. Oh, no, no, not the, no, not this again. Yep, 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 yep. This is June 2.0. But do they have a rooftop bar? <sighs> We're going to need it. And then to to continue our our saga of will they or won't they, JetBlue has officially taken delivery of its first A321LR, the plane that will get them to London, one eventually. of the airports in London eventually. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah, and this is also interestingly um, Airbus's first narrow body with the full airspace interior, which to most of you probably means nothing, but it's a take on the A350, A330 Neo interior with enhanced lighting and other things, bigger bins, generally just more aesthetically pleasing on board. Because uh, the A319 I was on uh, with American that was 20 years old the other day, that thing is dated. And, and the uh, the Airbus design language in the A320 has not changed 
at all since the 1980s. So this is the first major change of the A320 series interior, and JetBlue gets the first crack at it. Hey, let's hope it works out for him. Sure. I, I know that you're itching to fly it. I am. I'm waiting for those tickets to go on sale. I'm waiting for it to be announced that I can actually go to London before I buy those tickets, but I would very much like to be on that first flight out. I, I think that would be good. This has been episode 111 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rubinowitz, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.